And I'd like to grab out your Bibles with enthusiasm, readiness, and we're turning back to First Peter. We've had Missions Month, and I hope you're suitably encouraged not only about what the Lord's doing in different parts of the globe, but what the Lord's doing right here locally in Canberra, and hopefully as well encouraged and inspired about what the Lord wants to do in and through you in this wonderful mission that we have to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. But we're returning now to our study through the letter of 1 Peter. We're going to pick it up in just a moment if you want to turn there in readiness from chapter 1 verse 22. As you're finding a place, let me pray for us. Ah, Lord, it is with great thankfulness, with gratitude in our hearts that we gather as your people, the ones whom you chose before the foundation of the world, the one, ones whom you predestined in love. And Father, as we gather before you to worship you through the reading and the proclamation of your word, we pray both that your name would be exalted. We pray that you'd be lifted high, Lord, and that as you're lifted high, as you promised, that you draw each of us, all men unto yourself. But Lord, we pray that as we exalt your name, that you would transform and change us into your image. We ask that your word would go forth with power to accomplish all that you desire in our hearts. Change us, God. Transform us. Lord, do whatever you need to do in us that you might do what you desire to do through us. For the glory of your wonderful name, Lord Jesus. We say that we love you, we're here to seek you, we're here to know you. Would you still and calm the voices that so often distract us from hearing the one voice that truly matters, the voice of your Holy Spirit. Speak to us, we pray, and give us ears to hear what you're saying. We ask in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, if you came in late, we're heading to 1 Peter. Chapter 1, verse 22 is where we're up to in our study through the letter of First Peter. And let me introduce it, let me set it up by way of review and just uh, setting us up for the focus this morning in this way. Here's a quote that I like. It says, it's great to have big dreams. It's great to have big dreams, big ideas, but at some point you still have to get out of bed. It's a sad reality, isn't it? It's great to have big dreams, but sooner or later we still have to get out of bed. About a week or so ago, I visited a couple, they were here at the early service actually this morning, and they've just built their first house, brand new house up north, northern suburb of, of uh, Canberra. It's a wonderful city, very excited to show me around, so I got the tour inside. Beautiful house, all done, and then of course the gardens are a blank canvas. Renovator's dream, so to speak. So they were showing me pictures and telling me all about what they were planning on doing, intending to do with this garden of theirs, shrubs and trees and rockeries and paths and all these areas. And then as they launched in, they discovered, as many of us has, have discovered when we purchased our own place, that the soil in Canberra is rocks and clay and rocks and clay and more rocks. So there they were, chipping away with shovels and picks, and I said as I was there, seeing the house, I said, this is going to take you a decade 
just to get your garden dug up, let alone anything planted. Why don't I come over and I'll bring my industrial jackhammer? Yes, I have one. And so I did this week. We booked in a time. They finished work early and I came in and we jackhammered their front garden. For those wondering what your pastors get up to midweek, this week there was some pastoral jackhammering. We dug some holes. We broke through some difficult situations, shall we say. And in fact, I thought as we were jackhammering their garden, there's a few pastoral situations that could probably use the assistance of a pastoral jackhammer. (laughs) We'll leave those stories to another time. The point is this. If you want the dream, whether it's your dream garden, whether it's your dream anything, there's a principle in life. If you want the dream, there will come a point when you must roll up your sleeves. The dreaming will get you so far. It's wonderful to dream, but at some point, the rubber needs to hit the road. At some point, we've got to get out of bed. At some point, we have to roll up the sleeves. And that's a little bit like the tack that Peter will take in this wonderful letter. We've seen what I believe is one of the most incredible pictures of what he calls true grace. It's his purpose in in writing this particular letter, to establish to exhort, to declare, to proclaim that we would catch this incredible vision of true grace, what it is. And not just catching the vision, but true grace would catch a hold of us. And in his tact, he'll move on from this incredible vision, this picture of what grace looks like, to what we then need to do to play our part, to see it come to fruition. So if you're with me, 1 Peter Chapter 1, verse 22, says this, Having, or therefore, some translations say, Therefore, having purified your soul. See, there's a change of tact here from talking about grace. Therefore, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Comma. We'll continue in a moment. Keep your place there. Let me make these comments. There's a few key words here. We're talking about obedience to the truth. We're talking about purification. What is it that Peter's trying to encourage us with here? You see, Peter's painted this picture of what our former lives used to look like. He said things like, once you were living according to the passions of your former ignorance. Once you were living lives of futility, but you've been rescued. You've been ransomed. You've been redeemed. That's what he's continued to return to. We once lived in ignorance, driven along by empty, futile ways, selfish passions, evil desires, but all of that changed when we encountered the grace of the Lord Jesus. All of that changed. He declared our lives worthy of the blood of his Son. He rescued us. He redeemed us from futility, from emptiness, and he set our lives apart for himself. That's what we've covered in some detail, this wonderful, glorious picture of grace. What do we do in response? Well, Peter says, you have obeyed. You have obeyed the joy of obedience, the need of obedience. And interestingly, nearly every week during Missions Month, there was a theme that wasn't planned on obedience. We could easily camp there for a while, couldn't we? Talk about the need and the joy Purple purposefulness in obedience, the obedience that the Lord requires of us. But Peter continues, he says, So you have obeyed the truth, and as a result, there is a purification of your souls. 
And I would suggest it's not so much that we make ourselves clean from sin by obedience, that's not at all what he's saying, but that the obedience allows us to live the pure and clean and holy lives that he intends us to live. We obey him, we stop being double-minded and torn between selfishness and fulfilling his will for our lives. But there's a key word here, and you miss it a little bit in the ESV. It says, having purified your souls by obedience for a sincere brotherly love. The original King James, which I don't think we have, actually says unto. There's a link between these thoughts. We've obeyed from, but we've obeyed unto something. What is it we've obeyed unto? A brotherly love. And he says, because you have obeyed unto a brotherly love, therefore love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Remember, there was a comma at the end of verse 22, so let's read on. Verse 23, it says, since you have been born again, same flow of thought. You've obeyed unto love, therefore love, because you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Amen. And guess what? We finished a chapter. One chapter. Pat yourselves on the back. We're even going to continue in a minute and read another verse. So what's he saying? He's saying, you've obeyed unto brotherly love, therefore love, because you've been born again. He's saying there is a natural response. There's a natural reflect that, reflex that should have happened as you obeyed. As you saw grace and you turned your life, you received this gift, your encounter, grace got a hold of you. What's the natural response? The natural outflow should be brotherly love. So yes, nod your heads. Are you with me? The most natural response is love. And what I love about this is it's not just the love that you have received. That's not the test he's talking about. It's the love that you give. A sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. See, the litmus test of whether in your obedience you've truly allowed grace to get a hold of your life is not standing here and receiving God's love. That's wonderful, that's good, that's important. We continue there. He's not saying how much love is coming in. He's saying how much love is going out. We could put it this way, and I love this picture. Grace has so got a hold of you that it's affecting everybody around you. It's spilling over. It's life lived in the overflow. If I wanted to know whether you got grace, I'd ask you, have you got grace? You'd say yes. But if I wanted to know whether grace had really got you, I'd ask the person sitting next to you. I'd ask the person that you live with. I'd ask your husband or your wife. Would you dare ask that question to those you live with? Would you say, honey, what is it that's spilling over from my life onto you? Is it good? Is it love? Because that's what Peter's saying it should be. Or is it something? I challenge you this week. Ask your wife. Ask your family. Just don't ask mine. I'm not sure what they might say. Grace is a life lived in overflow. There's this overflow spilling effect of love. And that's what I want us to focus on this morning. That's, I believe, as Peter says, right, you've seen grace. Now it's time to roll up your sleeves. And this is the first way in which we get to really get dirty as a part of this picture. So if you're taking notes, three points, and in fact, 
as we continue on, we'll see this overflow of grace equaling love. And he'll go on and talk about the way that love fuels our worship. He'll talk about how worship fuels our witness and continues on and on. But this morning, three simple realities that Peter says in this verse about the overflow of grace, which is this brotherly love. Number one, we see this, that love is a priority. You could even say love is the priority. Because it's not a list. He doesn't say that you're born again unto all of these different things. He says you're born again unto one thing, a brotherly love. Therefore, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Now, that word there for earnestly, it's an interesting word. It literally means at full stretch, in an all-out manner, with an intense strain. It's, in fact, a word that would often be used in an athletic environment, in the same way that Paul, in his writings, he often uses athletic analogies. He says, run like you're achieving the prize. talks about athletes. This is a similar sort of word. I was reminded this week as we... uh, launched into uh, Saturday morning sport. We've avoided as long as we can having any of the kids play Saturday morning sport. But this Saturday was the first of my eldest daughter's netball games. So I thought it's compulsory that I sit her down and I give her the fatherly advice, the chat. I said, sweetheart, this is your first game. And on went the chat. I tried to behave myself very well. I just gave her a few choice words of encouragement. And she looked at me as we finished and she said, Dad, is there any chance Mum could take me to the game today? (laughs) I said, I think I'll be booking in to see Catherine this week for some ministry. So my lovely wife took her along with Nanny and Poppy and I said to her afterwards, I said, sweetheart, how how did it go? She said, oh, it's great, it's a good game. The only problem was, she said, Poppy was so loud. (laughs) I was so embarrassed. So I thought, there you go, he's, he's warmed her up for me, I'm ready to go next week. But in the same way that we might encourage a daughter, that we might encourage someone that we love in their pursuit, in their sporting endeavours, to leave it all on the field, to pursue it, this is what Peter's saying about loving one another. He's saying, pursue this, completely exhaust all of your resources in a single-hearted effort to love one another. So it's good to pause and think, why? why? Why is this so important? Why does not only Peter, but Paul emphasizes the need to love one another? I mean, isn't it enough? Isn't it enough just to encounter the love of God? Isn't that enough? Shouldn't that be enough? To encounter His love, to encounter His grace? Why is it always then that we must love other people? I mean, Lord, have you seen the people around me? How am I supposed to love them? Can't I just love you? Isn't that a better, more efficient, more effective way to make this whole thing work? It's the number of reasons why this is so important. But it goes back to the reality that God himself is community. He is a love relationship. Father, Son, excuse me, Holy Spirit. In Genesis chapter 1, God says, let us make man in our image, in this picture of community. And we see throughout the scriptures, from the Garden of Eden to the city, the New Jerusalem, God continually expresses himself in the midst of community, not in the absence of community. It's no surprise then that the Great Commission is given to a group of people, and it's given in the context of community. John 13, 35, Jesus says, By this all men will know 
that you love me. By this, the gospel will fully be proclaimed. By this, the gospel will have effective witness. And it's not by your doctrine. Doctrine's important. It's not by your love of scripture. It's not by your zeal for missions and evangelism, although that too is important. It's by your love for each other. By your love for one another. I mean, if our witness was measured by the love that we had for each other in this room, if your personal witness was measured by the love that you have for those who surround you in life, what sort of a witness would we be giving? Let's move along quickly. So we are called to proclaim the gospel, but it's got to be more than words. It's got to be the way we lived. We can never fully proclaim the gospel without doing it in the midst of community. You can never be all that you are called to be. We can never be all that we're called to be as a church. The church in general will never be all that it's called to be unless we can understand this reality and this priority of actually loving one another. And that's hard when sometimes you don't even like each other. Sometimes the hardest people to love is your own family. Paul puts it this way. He says, you could speak with the tongues of angels. We could have in our midst signs and wonders. We could see all sorts of things, hear sorts of things, demonstration of the power of God. He says, and yet without love, it counts for nothing. It counts for nothing. Not even is it slightly hindered. Will it be less effective than if you'd had the right attitude, the right heart attitude? He says, no, it will be of no benefit at all. So this is what I want us to grab. You see, if you want to see God do something amazing in your life personally, do you know where it starts? After, of course, encountering His love, surrendering your life to Him, it starts with you intentionally loving others. Do you want to see God do something amazing in our city, in our church? Do you know where it's always going to start? It's always going to start in the way that we love each other. That's point number one. You see this priority. Point number two. You see this flow of love. This is not about what you can get as much as it is about what you can give. We so much want to make this story of grace about us. And it really has been in so many ways. It's just been about all that God has done for us. This incredible outline of his purpose, his plan, his mission. His love for you. The good news is that that's not the end of the story. Peter will go on and he'll say, All of this has happened, grace has happened, so that you might proclaim the glory of his name. We get the grace, he gets the glory. It doesn't stop with us. If it does, it's a self-focused, selfish gospel. Grace is all about his glory and us called to live for his glory on this earth. And how do we do that? We love one another. had an interesting conversation a little while ago now as part of our fulfilling the duties to maintain a marriage license in our country. You need to go along to marriage celebrant professional development courses. And I can assure you it's a lot of fun in the same way that going to the dentist, <laughs> getting teeth pulled is fun. But we had a conversation, there's always compulsory units and there's other electives and conversation goes here, there and everywhere. There was a discussion about something called, it's a term you may or may not have heard, 
in this area, this brave new world of marriage and redefining marriage, a term called sologamy, or sometimes it's simply called self-marriage. So this is the process by which you marry yourself. Have we heard of that? Who's not heard of? Well, the, wow, lots of people haven't. But this, this is a thing. This is genuinely a thing. Celebrities are doing it. I mean, you, you see it around. Let me give you a definition. Selfmarriage.com, according to the website, you can look this up, defines it as this. It says this is a profound rite of passage into wholeness, trust, self-responsibility, self-liberation, and love sourced from within. It's the freedom to live authentically in alignment with your deepest values and the dedication to love yourself no matter what goes on and says, you are invited to walk down the aisle of your own heart and meet yourself unveiled. It is time to marry yourself. Or not. But there is, if you look around, even in this wonderful city that we live, there's many services that now provide a self-marriage ceremony. There's, in fact, a, a website that was launched last summer that offers consulting services, wedding photography. There's a travel agency that offers a two-day self-wedding package. You choose a wedding gown, bouquet, hairstyle, and pose for formal wedding portraits. Or if you're more on the low key, here's one to note down. There's a website called imarriedmyself.com. And you can buy a DIY self-marriage kit. Why not? If you're marrying yourself, you might as well take your own ceremony as well. For $50, you'll get a sterling silver ring, ceremony instruction, vows, and 24 affirmation cards to remind you of the vows you made to yourself. For an extra 230 you get a 14-carat gold ring. Go ahead. You're worth it. <laughs> now, I say that not to suggest that we're going to broaden our range of services as a church or even to suggest that all of us want to marry ourselves. But there is this tension. There is in life. All of us struggle, even if we don't realize it, making ourselves the center, the source of our existence. We do. See, the problem is, let's take this into a church context, is, is so often we've spent so much time here, and this is a wonderful place to be, receiving, receiving. Ah, oh, I just need more of your love, Lord. need more of us. I want to encounter you. I want to encounter you more. We've forgotten that we need to be spending more time here. We come here, we're like, oh, yeah, let's go back to that other place. That was much nicer. We receive, we receive, we receive, and we forget the reality that this whole picture is of a flow. What happens if there's no flow? If there's flow in and no flow out? Things begin to stink. Before you know it, the stink of narcissism, of self-interest, and self-focus fills everything. So the beauty and the power of grace is not what you can get, it's what you can give. It's glory to God, it's love to one another, living for His glory, demonstration of His power upon the earth. Better pick up some speed here. I had this conversation, and, and this is, I think, just symbolic of, of where society is at in general, because we just continue to make things about ourselves. Even marriage can be about ourselves now. But I was asked for advice by someone. They came and said, look, I've got a good friend. They weren't 
a believing friend, but they'd been in a long-term relationship over 10 years, and the lady had decided that she was going to leave this particular guy. And the person who came asking for advice says, I don't know what to tell them. And I said, well, tell me this scenario. And she said, well, it's like this. They've been in this long-term relationship, but my friend, who's the girl, has just woken up, and she said to me, I just, I don't know what it is, but this relationship's not fulfilling me. It's just not filling my needs. I feel like it's not challenging me. There's nothing in this relationship that I'm getting anything out of at all. So my only option is to leave. And I said, well, here's it was a couple of problems. The first problem is that a relationship is never only about one person, unless it's a self-marriage, and that's a whole other issue. <laughs> but the other issue is that a perfect relationship is never found. Here's the reality. If ever you found a perfect person, you're not perfect, and so it's not going to be a perfect relationship. A perfect relationship doesn't happen. It's made. It's a commitment to one another through the ups and downs, the struggles, to make the most of that which you've committed yourself to. It's exactly the same way. I can't tell you how many people over the years have come and had conversations about church and say, well, I've been hurt too many times. I just cannot find the perfect church. And I say, well, a perfect church never exists. Because if it did and you joined it, it would no longer be perfect. I don't say exactly like that. With love. Bless you, brother. The truth is that a perfect community is never found. It's made. It's where people intentionally commit themselves to love each other. Is this a perfect community? No. Will it ever be? No. But we can make every effort, as Peter said, to make it as good as we can, to represent and reflect the kingdom of God on this planet as we choose to commit our lives to each other. Third point is this, is that this takes effort. Let's continue on because 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, it's a bit of an unfortunate chapter break, but really it's the, similar, the same line of reasoning and thought that Peter is giving us here. He's just said, given us the command, love one another earnestly, verse 2, so or therefore, because of this command, put away all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, all envy, and all slander. Some translations say gossip. And he's just not saying in the corporate setting there. He's saying personally. He's saying if you want to take this seriously, you need to roll your sleeves up and you need to deal with whatever is here that is causing any blockage or issue in the flow of love. He's saying examine the flow. Is it love? If not, perhaps you need to look intentionally at dealing with some things here. So I believe if Peter feels so strongly to tell these people who'd encounter grace to deal with these things, then we can be certain that we will find ourselves in situations where we feel malice and deceit and dishonesty and hypocrisy and envy and gossip. So it's a little bit like this. He's saying, here's the command, love earnestly, and the good news is God is going to make sure you get a lot of practice. He's going to put you around people that will press every button so that when these things come out, you can deal and you can love radically and extravagantly and costly. It's amazing how little it takes to block the flow. 
One of the joys of living out on a rural property is that we're not on a town's septic system. We have our own septic tank and system. And with young kids, for those who have been or are in that phase of life, it's amazing how many things get put down your toilets. And when you're in town, you're just like, well, just flush a bit harder, flush a bit. Eventually, it's just going to go down. I don't know where it goes, but it'll disappear somewhere and we'll all be happy. That doesn't work so well with a septic system. And so we've had a few times where all of a sudden you get this gradual aroma where toilets begin blocking up. And I ignore it for as long as possible. I say, just flush harder, just flush. Just keep flushing. And sooner or later, unfortunately, the aroma spreads throughout the entire house. People come over and they say, what is that smell? Let me have a look at the septic system. Let me find out the problem. And let me tell you, it takes work. You know, you've got to find your longest gumboots. You've got to get big gloves on. And you've got to trench down through your pipes to find out where this blockage is. It's not easy, it stinks, and it smells, but it's much better than putting up with the smell of blocked-up septic system in your house. You find what this... And sometimes it's been a couple of extra little baby wipes. Sometimes it's a little toy. It's little things. You think, oh, does a little gossip really hurt? Does it really? I mean, I'm only just telling them so they can be prayerful about the situation. You know, does, does, it really, does it really matter if I hang on to this bitterness? Does, does it really, you know, like, well, Jesus takes this very seriously. Matthew 5.24, he says this, if you come to worship and you realize as you're there, as you come to church on a Sunday morning, you realize that there is something, it doesn't say what, if there is anything between you and another brother or sister and you recognize that, it says, leave immediately, leave your gift at the altar. That's what he says. Go and deal with the issue that has been brought to your attention and then come back and worship. It's an incredible thought. What would we do? Most of us would at least wait till the end of the service and think, oh, I'll call them later. But this is a priority. The Lord is saying, no, you don't understand how important this is. We've got to deal with the blockages. You know, if we're, if we're here and just receiving and receiving, but we realize that there's no flow, check the blockages, check the issues of your heart, roll your sleeves up, get down and dirty, because not only is it going to affect your life and effectiveness, but it has the power to affect and to change the aroma and atmosphere, shall we say, of a whole community. So the truth is that grace doesn't fix up all our issues. We're invited to come and stand in this flow of his love, and we need to do that. We need to continue to do that. It's not that we leave that place, but only we can choose to love. Only we can choose to remove the blockages. Only we can choose to ensure that there is adequate flow that's coming through our lives. Danny Silk, he's got this book. You might know, might have heard of it. It's called Keeping Your Love On. It's a great book, and he has this phrase. He talks about, is your heart engaged? Is your heart engaged? See, it's so easy for us to get into this place where we're just going through the motions, we're just coming to consume, we're sitting in neutral, hopefully not reverse, hopefully we're at least heading the right direction, and we realize that we haven't gone anywhere in five years, five months. But he's talking about, is your heart engaged? engaged in the midst of a disengaged society, 
Are we actually willing to roll up our sleeves? Are we willing to engage and to love with others, with those people that the Lord has put us around? I could think of many examples in a positive sense to illustrate this, but I know that Adam features regularly as a sermon illustration, and so does my family, but Catherine doesn't, and so I asked her permission to share a Catherine sermon illustration. But when Catherine started work here at the office, you know, she's someone who I would say, possibly her greatest gift, certainly one of her greatest gifts, is she lives with her heart engaged. She does. She lives with her heart engaged. And so she said, right, under this new pastoral transition, here's what we're going to do. We're going to have all the offices close together. So we had to build her an office in the middle of nowhere just so she could be close. Took a little bit of work. And she said, you know what? If we're going to work together, we might as well pretend like we like each other. And so we're going to do dinners every month. We're going to hang out. We're going to spend time together. We're going to babysit each other's kids. We're going to get messy and dirty so that we can build and connect with one another and learn to love each other. And you know what happens? That's not to say that what we had before Catherine came on the scene was bad in any way. It wasn't. It was good. But she has a heart engaged, and it changes the whole dynamic of an office or a workplace. It fills it with the aroma of Christ. And that's the aroma that the world is so desperately searching and seeking for. See, in the same way that one blockage can fill a house, a place with all sorts of aromas, one engaged heart can impact a community. So imagine if we were a whole community of people with engaged hearts. Imagine if we were a whole group of people who took serious the words of 1 Peter where he says, earnestly love, earnestly love. It's the most natural response. So what are you doing about it? Imagine if we intentionally dealt with all the stuff. So you know what? I'm not going to hang on to that bitterness. I'm not going to hang on to any. I'm going to deal with that so that there is a flow of love not only to my life, but through my life to others. I'm going to intentionally engage. I'm going to go out of my way to greet people, to meet people, to give them a hug. I'm going to do whatever I have to do to build my office next door. I'm moving in. I'm moving into the neighborhood. I'm your next door neighbor. Whatever it costs to love. And see, the reality is there is always a cost with love. There is. Love always pays a price. Love always costs something. It is expensive. But there is one who knows the cost more than any of us could imagine. And that's our Heavenly Father who Romans 8.32 said, He spared not His own Son. He gave everything He had in this incredible call to love. And He invites us to do the same. Whatever it costs, earnestly love one another. Amen.